0: How are we doing? church? doing good? Great. You look awesome. Hey, grab your Bibles. We're in 1 John chapter 5. It's way towards the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 6. That's where we'll pick it up. Hey, um, I wasn't here last week. Uh, Pastor Ryan Stone did an incredible job unpacking uh, Love Overcomes. And now he is in Uganda leading a mission trip there. Part of the reason that I wasn't here is that uh, I was in Miami. And um, I think I told you this before. Uh, we have kind of two types of travel in my house. We've got Presbyterian travel or Presbyterian vacations. That's when the elect are invited and it's very organized and it's very scheduled and it's that kind of thing. And then we have kind of a Pentecostal sort of vacation, if you know what I mean. It's a lot of speaking in tongues and laying on the hands. You're tracking with me? And so uh, we were in South Beach, Miami, and so it was a Pentecostal kind of a vacation. Uh, it started as a pastor's conference. It turned into that kind of vacation. And so we hung out in South Beach for a few days. I just need to say this. There's some things you cannot unsee. Can I just say that? I don't know if you've been to South Beach, but people need Jesus. All right. And so we had a great time, it was a lot of fun, but we came back on Saturday, we came back early to make sure that we would be with our kids for 4th of July, because you know, we thought that'd be a lot of fun, exploding stuff, and the name of the country, and, and it was great, and so, um, so we got back, and we got with our kids, and we, we uh, linked up with some of our best friends, and, and we thought we had this epic night planned, I mean, it was really, really cool, because this is something great, our friends live on the intercoastal waterway, and they have a boat, and you know what the only thing better than having a boat is? Having a friend with a boat, amen. Which, by the way, can we just testify? How many of you have a boat? Just raise your hand high, please. All right, I see that hand. Did Jesus did a lot of ministry on boat. Don't be a, don't be ashamed of a boat. Okay, that's good stuff. And that means we could be friends. So we got together with our friends, and we get on this boat. And and the idea was we're going to go out in the intercoastal and we're going to watch the fireworks display, the Jack's Beach fireworks display from the intercoastal. And we weren't the only ones with the idea. You know, there are a lot of boats there. And so we ride out there with my family and with some of our best friends on a boat. And it's not my boat, which is even better. I don't have to pay the maintenance. I don't have to clean it up. I just get to ride on it. So that's great. And there we are on the boat. And then the fireworks just start you know blowing up in every direction apparently everybody in Duval County has incredible fireworks So in every direction they're going and we've got the radio cranked up something very Christian like Zach Brown or something like that going And we're just feeling the love turn that off a little God bless America at one point and, and you're just thinking you know it doesn't get much better than this and right about that time I mean we're on a boat in the intercoastal the fireworks are going and right about that time Reagan Capri my five-year-old goes I'm bored when are we going back? which there's something in me that is like what are you kidding me are you how can you be bored we're on a boat we're in the intercoastal it's it's we're living the greatest country in the history of countries there's thousands of dollars of explosions going all around us zach brown is serenading us it doesn't get any better than this woman what is wrong with you that's kind of my parent inside voice and if you're a parent kind of get a witness right that's what's happening how can you be bored What is wrong with you? But the way it comes out of my mouth is this. Really? Really? And here's, here's the thing. If you're a Christian and you're bored, I think God looks at us and is like, are you kidding? Are you kidding? I sent... Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, on a rescue mission to pull you up out of the muck and the mire and out of death to rescue you, to redeem you, to bring you from death to life. I've filled you with the Holy Spirit. I've put you in this place on purpose to live on mission. I've gathered you together in this incredible movement that is the church of 1122. So what is wrong with you if you are bored? If you're a Christian, you do not have a right to be bored. If your life is boring and you're not a Christian, I'm going to explain to you why. That is what we're going to talk about. The reality is that love lives. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Cuz I want to read this passage and then we're going to walk through it together. It's 1 John chapter 5 beginning in verse 6. It says this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth, for there are 3 that testify, the spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Would you pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You so much that You sent Your Son on a rescue mission that we might have life. Not just end up in heaven one day, though that's very important. It's going to be awesome. But our life begins in You now. God, we pray against the spirit of boredom. It has no place in Your church. It has no place in Your family. God, may, may today you rescue us from that boredom and may you set our eyes not on the things of this world, but set our eyes on you and invite us into the epic adventure that is life found in your son. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> First John chapter 5, verse 6, we're going to spend the rest of our time just unpacking this. It started out with these verses in verse 6. It says this, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Could there be more confusing verses in the whole Bible? You're like, what in the heck is this talking about? All right, well, that's why I'm here to help explain. So there's, um, there's a few different, I guess, theories or things that theologians think these things... Point to. And what you've got to remember is that John is addressing this heresy in his church. Remember this? That he writes, about the, he writes about the assurance of our salvation is found in the finished work of Jesus, not in our works. And so there was a group of people called the Gnostics that were in his church, but they've left his church. And they did not believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was fully God and fully man. They thought that, that Jesus was just a carpenter guy and that God was only a spirit and that God did not become flesh. And so a part of what this may mean, when it says water and blood, that he came by water and blood, it's talking about the natural birth of Jesus Christ. So if you're not a parent, I don't know if you know this yet, but when a baby's born, it's kind of gross, all right? And there's a lot of water, and there's a lot of blood, and there's a little vomit. That's just what's there, all right? I don't know who said it was a beautiful thing. They're lying. It's gross, all right? But this actually happened to Jesus, that Jesus was born fully God and fully man, and that is a part of what this could mean. To tell the Gnostics, to tell that, that group of heretics, no, 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 the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then there's some other theologians, and I think they could also be right. And they say, no, 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 what the water and blood is talking about here is that when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, and he said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit, then a Roman soldier came out with a spear and stabbed him under his ribcage in the heart. And John says in his account, and blood and water flowed. And again, the Gnostics, this group of heretics, believe that that God did not suffer and die. And John is saying, no, Jesus, the the God-man, physically, literally suffered and died. And he died of a broken heart. He was stabbed in the heart and blood and water flowed. That it was not just an apparition. It was not just a spirit. It was not just an idea that died on the cross. But the, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, died that day on the cross. And other theologians kind of think, I'm sort of in this camp, I think, they think that the water and blood could represent two things, two events in the life of Jesus. And one was the start of his ministry and one was the culmination of his ministry. That the water represented the baptism of Jesus and that the blood represented the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And again, all of these things would have been been, anti-Gnostic. It would have been against the people that didn't believe that Jesus actually came and lived and died and rose again on the third day. That's what it means. But regardless of, of kind of which one you think, I think they're all just different versions of the same thing. What's true is that this is Trinitarian language. That all three of them point to the reality... That there's one God in three persons. This is very important. There's one God in three persons. Now again, it's very hard to explain. It's even harder to understand. It's because we have like a Dixie Cup-sized mind and an Atlantic Ocean-sized God. And you just can't fit all of that in here. So if you think about it too much, your head will explode. But you've just got to understand that God in and of himself is a perfect relationship. One God, three persons. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. And God has always been in this perfect, submissive love relationship with God. And because God so loved God's self, out of an overflow of God's love for God's self, it spills out into creation, into the canvas that is you and me. And that we were created in the image of God, to be in relationship with God and to be in relationship with one another. That we were created to give and receive love because we're created in the image of God and because God is love. And the, re- the, the way he can be love is because he is three persons in one God. And so all of this is to say that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they all testify to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. And here's what this means. You see, in the Old Testament... You had to have three eyewitnesses, three eyewitnesses, and that was a slam dunk in your court case. If you just brought one eyewitness, they were like, maybe, maybe not. If you brought two, it could be a conspiracy there. But if you had three eyewitnesses, then that was slam dunk in the court of law. And so what John is saying is, if you receive the testimony of three men, then the testimony of God is greater because God in, of himself is three witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> For this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony of himself. And whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning the Son. Here's why this is important. Here's what John's talking about. He's talking about three different kinds of beliefs here. First and foremost, he says it's foundational and fundamental that you believe in God and the testimony of God that he sent Jesus to die on a cross as a propitiation for our sin it's important to believe in the Greek word there we spent a whole week on this the Greek word is pastuo it means believe in not just believe that it, it, it's more fully translated to believe trust and commit your whole life into not just not just a mental assent to some facts cause, cause here, just quite honestly we live in the south most people say they believe in God But what it really means to Pestuo God is to transfer the weight of who you are onto Him. The way that I know that you believe in the chair that you're sitting in is because you have trusted the chair with the weight of your body. And so it's not, you you don't believe in the chair by just acknowledging that there's a chair or praying a prayer to a chair or singing a song to the great and glorious chair. It's when, when you transfer the weight of who you are and you trust that the chair will hold you up. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. That you believe that when Jesus Jesus died on the cross, it counted for you. And you don't have to hold you up anymore, that he will hold you up. So he says it's important that you believe in God. He also says, it's also important, you can remember we spent a whole week on this, that John said we're supposed to test every spirit. And so what that means is that it's important to believe the right things about God. That you can't rightly love God without rightly believing God. Believing the right things about God. The illustration I use is this. Husbands, if you were to go out this afternoon and you were to write your wife a love song and you wrote this incredible song, this very melodic song about how much you loved her blonde hair and she don't have blonde hair, guess what? She ain't going to like your song at all. You know why? She thinks you're singing about another chick. And guess what? They don't like that, all right? Neither does God. So it is important to believe rightly about God. You can't rightly love Him without believing rightly about Him. But what's also important here is he says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. See, not only are we to believe in him and trust him for our salvation, not only are we to believe the right things about him, that's why doctrine and theology is important. By the way, it's also why when I teach the Bible, we just kind of go verse by verse and just teach it straight so we don't get my junk uh, in there. And so it's also, it's also important that you believe him, like you believe what he says, that you're not trusting him just so you go to heaven one day, but you, you believe that he knows how to do life better than you know how to do life. That, that you, trust his, you trust his promises. You trust his provision. You trust his warning. But here's what happens a whole lot in the south, in the Bible Belt, where we live. So many people grow up in and around church, you kind of get inoculated to the gospel. And so you believe in Jesus, all right? And you believe some of the right things about him, but you don't believe him. In other words, you say, hey, look, I know you might be the author of life and almighty and eternal and all-knowing, all knowing, all those things. That's great. But I am 25 years old and I think I've got some things figured out, God. I know you have a way to do sex and a way to do reconciliation and a way to do finances and a way to do all of those kinds of things, freedom. But I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to try my way better because I think I know better than you. And so John would say, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Not only are you to believe in Him, and not only are you to believe the right things about Him, but why don't you believe Him when He tells us how to live? And in fact, you know, we live in a culture that says, hey, that's great for you, and maybe you believe that, but I don't know if I believe that. And I think John would say, that's fine, but guess what? You know what God believes? Here's what God believes. God believes that God sent Jesus Christ, and through His life, death, and resurrection, that that He purchased for us life. And the life that he purchased for us is not just so when we die we can go to heaven, but he purchased for us life that begins now, that we are to live now. In fact, in John 10.10, the Bible says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus says, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11. And this is the testimony. All right. So here it is. Here's what God believes about God. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life. This is a big deal, okay? First and foremost is this, is that that God gave us eternal life. That eternal life is a gift. Do you know what you have to do to earn a gift? Nothing. Because the moment you try to earn it, it ceases to be a gift. When you try to earn something, that is called a wage. So most of us in the room, I don't know, a lot of us in the room probably get paid every two weeks, right? And how many times do you check your bank account and your employer deposits money into your account because it's your wage, and how many of you see it as a gift? Have you ever logged on after two weeks of work, and i like, oh my goodness, look what they did. They gave me money again. I cannot believe this. And you marched into your employer's office and says, thank you so much, can I have a hug? No. Now, you might go crazy if it's not in there. Why? Because it's a wage, and you earn a wage. But a gift is when somebody gives you something that you have not earned. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So you know what this means? That eternal life is not based on how good you are. It's because it's a gift on God's good work in Jesus on the cross. That's what it is. And so when you receive a gift, it's free for you. But when you give a gift, it costs you the price of the gift. And so the free gift of eternal life for us costs God everything in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's what John 3.16 mean, means. It's what John 3.16 means when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. Ephesians 2 says it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the testimony of God, what God believes about salvation is this, is that eternal life is a gift. It's a gift. That God gives us the gift of eternal life. Now here, here's here's the problem too, is that most of us, we have a, a really skewed idea of what eternal life is. Most of the time when we hear this idea of eternal life or hear this phrase eternal life, we think about like the sweet by and by one day when we die that we're all going to go up to heaven or not all of us, but who, whoever's a Christian is going to go to heaven. And, and we have these really warped ideas about what heaven is. Okay. And, and I don't know where they come from, but some of us think that, you know, you think about fluffy clouds and either little chubby babies flying around and people playing harps and you're like, that sounds awful. I mean, I don't, I don't have any harp music on my playlist, you know? I don't know how to play the harp. I don't, I don't get it. And some people think you turn into angels. That's, that, that, none of that is true. All right? Um, if, if the Bible is being literal in the book of Revelation when it describes heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, it's like streets of gold and all of this, um, it, I, I think this is what happened. I think... I think the Holy Spirit inspired John and gave him a vision. And basically, we are so limited by our language, he just gave him the most incredible vision he could have of streets of gold and stuff to try to describe it. And I think it's infinitely better than that, right? So, so it's a big deal, all right? Eternal life is a big deal. The fact that we all spend eternity somewhere is a big deal. It's, all, it's a really big deal that hell is hot and forever is a long time. You should really consider that. But eternal life isn't just about what happens when you die, Eternal life starts the day that you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Eternal life is not just a chronological term, meaning that it will never, ever end. That word eternal life has in it that the life that we live right now should be full of joy and peace, that it should be full of purpose, that it should be full of hope, that it should be shalom, this kind of peace that transcends understanding And God wants to give us this gift of eternal life, or Jesus said, this abundant life, not one day just when we die, but right now in the life that we live, the moment that you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. So he says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is important. Here's what he's saying. Apart from Jesus, there is no life that's really life. That if you order your entire world, all of your finances and all of your relationships and and all of your planning, if you order your entire world, but you don't have first things first, and that is the preeminent Son of God, Jesus Christ, then your whole life is out of order. And if you don't have Jesus, you don't have life, period. And the reality is, is that we live in a world that spends billions and billions and billions of dollars trying to get us to hop on the merry-go-round of normality that it calls life. And I'm telling you, it is a bait-and-switch move. It is. It is a bait-and-switch move. Because the reality is, we're all on a life pursuit. We are. We're all looking for meaning in life. And what God's testimony is, is the only way to find life, is to find it in the creator of life itself, the author of life itself, and his name is Jesus. And it says, whoever has the son has life. Do You know why the church of 1122 is a movement for all people? It's because of all people kind of verses like this. Did you know that if you're a whoever, then you could have life in Jesus. Now, some of you think you're so good that you don't need Jesus. I've got good news for you, all right? If you're a really good church person, you can be saved too. All right? That's good news. Now, it's a lot harder because you've got to get over yourself and your own self-righteousness. All right, And you think I'm talking about somebody else right now. That's why it's so difficult. But you can be saved too. But you've got to surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and get over yourself. All right, And no matter how bad you are, I mean how bad, then you're a whoever. That you, if you would surrender your life to the lordship of Christ, then you can have life too. Because the things that you're chasing after aren't giving you life. And you already know it deep down in here. And some of you think, yeah, but you don't know how bad I am. (laughs) and you don't know how big our God is. When he stretched out his arms on the cross, it's infinitely bigger than any sin than you have ever committed because he swallowed it up and he threw it away and he paid the full price and he said to you, it is finished. So whoever has the son has life. Now the reality is we're all on this life pursuit, right? Every single one of us. And we live in this world that's trying to bait us down a road to buy into this worldview that describes what life is, and it's just not life without the sun. Think about it this way, okay? Loosen up a little bit and just think about this. Remember when you were a kid, and you had like dreams, and goals, and aspirations? I mean, I mean, really, you remember, remember when you were that age, kid? and people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And nobody was like, middle management. Nobody. Homeowner association vice president. Not a person that big ever says that right? You were unhindered. Like, my, my daughter's five years old, and she's still at that point where I say, Reagan, will you sing me a song? And she will immediately bust it. The cold never bothered me anyway, right? Just bam! But at some point, can we get a new song, though, please, Disney? So, but at some point, the world, like, beats us down to conform us and get us into our little spot, you know? And and here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. Reason why I think I think kids do have dreams and aspirations. I, I do believe God puts them in there. But 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 what happens is um you know when you're a kid you graduate from something like every six months these days. Have you noticed this? That everything's a graduation. Uh, Gretchen says, you know, when school got out this year, she says, hey, we got to go to JP's graduation. I'm like, he just got out of the third grade. That's not graduation, all right? He just made it to fourth grade. He's, he's, he's like a third of the way to like a real graduation. Now, where I'm from in my family, sometimes third grade was the graduation, but that's a different deal, <laughs> not with my kids, okay? We, we want them to keep going. But you know, you get a trophy for participating. But when you're little, you, you go and you graduate and then, and you have all these things to look forward to, right? You remember this? You, you get out of, you get out of elementary school and you're like, sweet, what's next is middle school. And then, and those are some awkward years and, and you're glad those are over. And then after eighth grade, you get to graduate kind of, and, and you go into high school and those are new and you get new experiences and driver's license and all of that sort of stuff. And then when you get out of high school, you know, you get to graduate from there and you think, oh, what's next? Maybe I'll go to college and then college is new and you're trying to figure out this career and you spend four or five or six years there just sort of wandering around and then finally you graduate and you think I still haven't learned anything I, they don't even have jobs in the major that I chose and so I think I'll go on to grad school because that's where it really happens and then you try to find yourself in grad school and it's about that point dad says we're not paying for school anymore and you think I don't think I'll graduate and then you get out into the real world and um, you know you get that diploma and, and do whatever you do with it and then you get a job and that's new and so you start climbing the corporate ladder and maybe you meet somebody and you buy a home and you have kids but it's everything's new 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 and then you get to about a little bit younger than me i'm 41 this typically happens like in your in maybe your mid to late i mean early 30s and one day one day you've accomplished you've graduated and graduated and graduated and graduated and then one day you and your spouse are laying in bed and you're about to go to sleep and you the fault hits you is this it i mean this is what i got like for the next 50 years or so huh this is it And you go to movies and you see these epic adventures and something stirs in you and then you go back home and you look around at your little life and you think, oh man, I mean really. And I pray, I pray you get to the is this it moment of your life earlier and earlier and early. I I hope that that is a grace of God for you to wake up one day and say, I think I'm just on the merry-go-round of normality. I mean, really, you read these books, like John Elder's book called Wild at Heart. It's a great book. He's got a a couple of theological problems there. But the premise of the the book is that God put on the heart of every man an adventure to live and a beauty to rescue and a battle to fight. And you think, man, my greatest battle is my HOA letter that I got about Dollar Weed. This is it? I just kind of feel like, I mean, the great decisions that I have to make are, you know, do I go with Frosted Flakes or a bagel this morning? Right? I mean, the, the adventure that we live is that when I get off work, I call my wife and we kind of do that uh, taxi jingo with the kids. Like, all right, you get her and go to dance and I'll get him and go to ball. And then, and then the highlight of your week is when you get home all together and you're like, yes, the voice is on. <laughs> and you're a grown person watching karaoke. Some of the biggest decisions that you make are on the way to work. You say, do, do I get a black coffee like a man or do I get one of a caramel macchiato like those other guys? Huh? <laughs> and around here we call that the merry-go-round of normality. And I'm telling you, that's where the world says you find life, is in that merry-go-round of normality. You remember the age when you realized the merry-go-round was lame? You remember? So a five-year-old and a nine-year-old at my house, right? So still in my five-year-old, um, if we go to the amusement park, I'm like, hey, Reagan, you want to ride the merry-go-round? And she's like, yeah. She's excited. She's like, oh, yeah, I could be on a unicorn or an eagle or a tiger. And then she's always like, why are the lame kids on the one that don't go up and down? I'm like, I don't know, scared parents with a helmet and a five-point on you to you know, make sure they don't fall off. <laughs> but let's go. But see, the other thing is true. we got a nine-year-old. And at this point, he's, re- he's been on real rides, and he thinks that the he thinks it's lame so I'm like JP don't you want to ride on the merry-go-round with your sister and he's like no dad the merry-go-round sucks and I'm like whoa whoa, don't say sucks you say sucks well don't say it around your mom okay that's where we are in my house it is the merry-go-round of normality that John is talking about that if you don't have the son guess what you are on the merry-go-round of normality and the highlight of the whole trip is when you go by your mom you're like hi mom and then there it is. You're just, you're like, it doesn't even go up and down that high. Oh, there you are again, same picture. I don't know why you keep doing it over and over and over again. And if that sounds like your life and you're a Christian, it should not be. You see, here's the thing. On the merry-go-round of normality that our culture is trying to sell us, there are, there are four major seats that we get tempted to come and sit in. The first one is this, and I've talked about this often and I will continue because some messages I think just deserve to be on repeat. And the first, the first kind of seat that we can go towards is this is self improvement. Because we think a thinner, richer, better educated version of me, and then I will be fully and finally satisfied. It's just true. All right, that's what we think. That's the lie that we're bought, that, that we buy into. All right? If you just use this shampoo, then then you will have life that is truly life. If you just wear these clothes, if you just if you could just lose a few pounds, look. Here's the reality. All right, it is it is right in the middle of the year. You weigh the same thing you weigh January first, did you not? Know I do too. I do too. I had these great goals, and I'm just as fat as I was then. Whatever. But here's the reality even if you attain all of your physical goals and you are ripped. I mean, you walk in here with just abs for days and cash falling out of your pockets. You know what the problem is? It still doesn't do anything to fully and finally satisfy, especially if you really lean people. You're miserable. You are miserable. We don't like hanging out with you because you're a bummer when we go out because we're eating good. And you're like, nothing tastes as good as thin. Shut up. This donut does. And you're, you hate us because you're jealous. You can't even enjoy it. But your Instagram's amazing. Awesome. All right? It's just true. And even if, I'm telling you, even if you are in tip top shape and you look amazing, guess what? You got two problems: time and gravity. They are not your friend. I promise you, mama, they are not your friend. Now, if you got a little extra change and you want to nip it and tuck it and stretch it and plump it or whatever, you still can't fight time and gravity. Eventually you start to look like a kind of a chemistry project, but that's okay. Hey. And look, I'm not anti-whatever. If, if the house needs painting, paint the house. But I'm just telling you, it will not do anything to satisfy the deep longings of your soul. That's just true. It's just true. And so, but you think, we all tend to think, man, if I can just improve me, and it makes me the center of the universe, and without Jesus, you don't have life. You don't have life, regardless of what you weigh. Or sometimes, sometimes we treat our hobbies like a god. Sometimes we look to hobbies. I mean, really, hobbies. Like if we could just get better at that, then and only then would I be able to experience life. Can I tell you something, fellas? Golf is a horrible god. It's a horrible place to put all of your time and all of your effort and all of your energy. And I'm not anti-golf. I'm just telling you this. Even if you were the best golfer ever, it would do nothing. It would do absolutely nothing to satisfy you. Do you know how I know? The PGA Tour. I mean, look at the lifestyles of some of those fellas, right? And they're incredible. And I hate to break this, do you? You're not going to be that good anyway. I've played with you. You're not going to be that good. And you're paying a whole lot of money to be miserable. Now, if you see it as a gift of God, then go out and play. I will come play with you. I like to play. I'm not very good. You've got to pay for it because I'm not paying my money for that. And I'll eat your $9 hamburger at your clubhouse. And and it is. It's very, very enjoyable. But it's a problem when you go out on the golf course and you miss a putt and, and cuss. And then you feel weird because you're with me and you're like, oh, I just said a bad word in front of the preacher. And it gets super awkward for us all. But I'm out there, don't really care that much and enjoy it. Do you realize that that golf makes a terrible God? A terrible God. No matter what your hot... Now here's the problem. Some of you wives are like, you tell them, pastor. Pinterest will not satisfy your soul. Another way that we get in kind of the self-improvement thing is the, is the amount of time, effort, energy, and money that we spend just entertaining ourselves. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Now, I'm not anti-movie. I'm not anti-entertainment. But there's a way to do that in which you engage some kind of epic saga story that stirs something in you that God put. But the problem is, most of the time we end up to the movies. And the reason is because it's raining. And God forbid we have to spend some moments in silence with God. God or face-to-face with the people we love. I mean, think about when we pick vacations. The first thing we do is scroll through the amenities to make sure that we'll be hypnotized and we don't ever have to stop with ourselves for a minute and just take a a check of reality. You see this? It's a merry-go-round of normality. So sometimes we look to self-improvement. That's one of the seats on the merry-go-round. Another big seat on the merry-go-round is religion. And religion is really just self-improvement or self-help in a choir robe. It really is. Sometimes we just try to make us a better version of ourselves from the outside. And then some folks, especially, look, if you grew up in and around church, and then you kind of quit going in college, and then then you had some kids, and you thought, we should probably raise our kids in church, and then you come back. And many of us have gone down this religious pursuit where we try to do good things so that we could please God. And when we do that, let me tell you why this is exhausting. Because you actually think that God... Either loves you once you get your act together and you really believe that God, he might let you into heaven one day, but really he had this low-grade frustration with you and he's just kind of putting up with you right now. And you think, gosh, if I could just attend four weeks in a row, then he'll really be into me. Or if I could just quit cussing so much or drinking so much or quit looking at this or that or the other and you try to do it from the outside in and it is exhausting. In In that deal, you're still your own God. Because the reality is, is that when Jesus Christ came, God believes that God sent Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for your sin. Propitiation means a payment that satisfies, which means that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross, which means he's no longer dissatisfied in you. That he's a good dad and he's really into his kids. And so if you show up to church just thinking that you're going to try harder and do better, it is exhausting, it's exhausting. That's why the 11.22, you don't get messages that God's good, you're bad, try harder, see you next week. That is not the message. God is good. You're not bad. You're dead. Dead. Dead people don't get better. In Christ, we can be brought from death to life. And yes, God points us in directions so that we can live this abundant life. But when we stumble and when we fall, he's a good dad that can pick us by, back up and by grace say, it is finished. You've got to get off that merry-go-round too. So one of the seats is self-improvement, another seat is is religion, and then a big one, man, and this is where the world just spends billions and billions and billions of dollars to get us to buy into. It is just the message of the world. There's a couple of different tracks of this one. A lot of times, we look for life in the shiny things of this world. Around here at 1122, we call it the cul-de-sac of stupidity, and the reason we call it that is because every single one of us has experienced this. We think that something temporary is going to fill an eternal need and desire. And then when that temporary thing doesn't, our answer is, "Oh, I know more temporary things. So let me, let me just go ahead and tell you here. I'm not anti-stuff. Get you some stuff. Stuff's fine, all right? But if you think, if you think that stuff is going to fully and finally satisfy your soul, then it's just get ready for another lap in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. One of the best illustrations I can think of is when you buy new clothes... And you walk into that dressing room, and you look at yourself in your current clothes, and you are like, you clothes are horrible. I can't believe what your clothes are doing to me. And you take those clothes off, and you throw them in a pile, and you uh, cuss those clothes, and then you get on new clothes with tags, and you look at them, and you're like, "Ah, oh, Do you realize that the clothes piled up right here used to make you feel the way the clothes on you do? Welcome to another lap. That's what the cul-de-sac of stupidity is, Okay. I'm telling you, um, if you think another bedroom and half bath are going to do something for your soul, you're fooling yourself. It's not. If you think that the car that you drive is going to do something for your soul, you are fooling yourself. I'm not anti-car. If you want a cool car, get you a cool car. Now, it's a lose-lose proposition. Let me just point this out to you. This is just wisdom, okay? If you're young enough to look cool in it, everybody thinks you're driving your mom's car. There's just that. Yeah, nice Mercedes scooter. That's what we think, Okay. And if you're old enough to afford it, we're like, oh, look at granddad in the convertible. You get him, tiger. That's just how we see it, okay? But if that's cool, the reality on the car thing, you can't even see yourself driving it. So if I were you, I'd go to the showroom, take a picture in it, and just carry it around in your regular car, all right? And just imagine yourself driving that one. Now, the reality is, is that temporary stuff cannot provide for you what only the Son of God can. You see? Here's the lie that the world... It starts very, very young age. Here's the lie that the world baits us into. Our kids are in school. Every single one of us do this. Hey, listen, listen, Timmy. You better study hard so you can make good grades. Why? So you can be at the top of the class. Why? So you can get to a good college. Why? So you can get to a good grad school. Why? So you can get a good job. Why? So you can make a lot of money. Why? So you can buy a lot of stuff. Why? So you can impress people that you don't know. Why? So that when you're dead, we can drop it off at Hope's Closet and sell it to people that you've never met. Welcome to the American Dream. That is it. That is it. And I'm just telling you, I do. Now, the alternative is not be lazy in Jesus' name. Absolutely not. You work as unto the Lord. And you make a whole lot of money. I mean, mean, make a bunch of it. I hope God blesses you like crazy. But then you leverage your financial resources on this earth as if you believe that Jesus is Lord of all. And the rest of the world scratches its head and is like, wow, who is your God that you would not be ruled by these things? You see, the greatest danger of the church is not persecution from this world. The greatest danger of the church is the seduction of this world. That we would live and that we would breathe and that we would spend money and that we would spend time just like a world that does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so some some people go for the shiny things of this world and it's another lap on the merry-go-round of normality. And then some some people go for the sensual and sin of this world. And I mean like that old school Baptist preacher two syllable sin. You know what I mean? Like sin. That kind of sin. I mean like debauchery sin. Like I'll do what I want with who I want when I want. If it makes me feel good so be it. I don't care if it abuses girls here and all over the world. I don't care if it tears down families. I don't care what it does because I am king of my own universe and I'm going to do what I want for me. Anybody else that does that we think that they are selfish egomaniac until it's the person in the mirror We begin to think no delayed gratification for me I'm gonna do what I want when I want with who I want and you ain't the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do You go down that road and I'm talking about you go down that road with sex drugs rock and roll Whatever it is, whatever you want to fill in the blank at best. You may end up on the merry-go-round of normality But probably it's death and destruction, not only for your own life, but for the people that love you the most. And I'm telling you, our world pays billions and billions and billions of dollars to bait you down a road. And when you get to the end of the path to turn, it's back on you. That's what an idol does every single time. Come on, follow me. It doesn't get any better than this until your life's a train wreck. And then see ya, we've tapped you for everything we can get out of you. Now let's go for the next generation. It's just true. And there we go again, on the merry-go-round of normality. And so some people look towards self-improvement, some people towards religion, some people to the promises of this world, and then the last one is this. The fourth big one I see is this, is relationships. That one of the, one of the most comfortable seats on the merry-go-round of normality is relationships. That we actually believe that if we could just meet the one, one, one. then we would be fully and finally satisfied and and it's crazy as connected as we are with instagram and twitter and facebook and all of those things how relationally starved our generation is and i mean some of you some of you are looking for a relationship because what you're saying is that my my relationship with the lord is not enough and that's why i mean you've got four e-harmony accounts and two christian tingles and whatever else you can get on okay and look, I'm not—I know it's Christian Mingle, but I do hey, Christian Mingle's fine; it's probably better than a bar. All right, I don't know. I met my wife in the gym. Maybe you should work out or look around here. It's a Target-rich environment, fellas. All right, so. But the reality is, is that girls make terrible gods. <laughs> Guys, you can't even say that out loud without laughing. Terrible gods. Look, I love my wife dearly. We've been married for 15 years. We're taking it all the way to the end. You got it? It's better now than it's ever been. My wife would make a terrible god. You know why? She's a bit moody. Okay, If she's God, wake up one morning, we could all be dead. That could just be the way it goes. Husbands, you'd be the worst God ever. Here's the problem. When you treat some relationship as your functional savior, you know what you do? You crush them with your expectations. Because they are going to let you down. They cannot provide for you what only the eternal God can provide for your eternal soul. They just can't. And so when when you begin to take your keys to joy and your keys to happiness and your keys to hope, and you hand them out to all the significant relationships that you have in your life, and you essentially say, my life will be complete once you guys all get your act together. You know what that's called? It's called codependency. They have meetings for stuff like that that you should attend. You've got to take all those things back together and lay them at the cross and say, Jesus, I need, I need you to be preeminent. I need you to be first in my life because it's not, it's not until you are first in my life that the rest of my life can be in order. Because the, the flip side of this is, is that when Jesus is first, when you do find life in the Son of God, then the reality is is that your relationships can glorify Him. That you really can turn your back on the stuff of the on the sin of this world. That you can enjoy stuff from God in a way that brings Him glory. That this thing doesn't have to be about religion. It really can be about a relationship with Jesus that's constantly being discovering new things about you and Him and deepening that relationship with Him. And that that self improvement happens not outside in so that God would be okay with you, but inside out and you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that only happens when you have the Son, Jesus, as first and preeminent in your life. So listen, here's the point. Get off the merry-go-round of normality. Get off the merry-go-round of normality and live the life that Jesus has for you. Because listen, church, I don't want to be normal. Normal is broke and sad and lonely, and that is not the life that christ created for us that is not what he purchased when he bled on the cross for us he came to give us abundant life and so if you're like well my life is pretty boring all right i'm i think i'm trapped on this merry-go-round of normality what do i do the first thing that you have to do is you've got to ask yourself the question do you have the son i mean that's what he says he says whoever has the son has life have you surrendered your life to the lordship of jesus christ have you transferred the weight of you onto him? Have you surrendered? Have you said, okay, I quit. I give up. This is not about me trying harder. I want to I receive that free gift of eternal life. If you haven't done that, then it doesn't matter what else you're doing. You're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's futility. And some of you would say, well, yeah, I did that a long time ago. Or even recently, but, but you know what? Somehow, those seats on that merry-go-round, man, they just draw me to it. That, that I don't mean to, but I tend to take my eyes off of this eternal calling that God has for me. And I just take a seat in the self-improvement ride or the religion ride. What do I do? Let me tell you, you need to stop doing the same old thing. You need to stop doing the same old thing and, and you need to change course. You need to do something different. You need to walk by faith and quit walking by fear. You need to hop off of the merry-go-round because it's not going to stop and just give you a comfortable step off. I hope you understand that. That this world has a system that supports itself that needs you to be sucked into that. And what you're going to have to do by the power of the Holy Spirit is hop off of that thing and it will take faith and your enemy will be fear. It's why the Bible says 366 times, do not be afraid. You know what that means for some of you? For some of you, it means a total, total change in your life. I mean like a career change, like quit your job and do that thing that God has called you to do. Now, I can tell you what it means for every single one of you. For some of you, it doesn't mean a change in in venue. It It just means a change of perspective. That you go back to your same job tomorrow, but you understand that you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, that God did not put a city on a hill to be hidden, but so that the whole world may see it, and that he may have placed you in your neighborhood, in your school, on your job, on purpose, so that you can live on mission that you can live on mission every day and that you would not be bored because God has sent you on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost, to be, to be a minister of reconciliation for the sovereign king of the universe. How is that boring? And that when you're on the ball field and when you're in, in your HOA meetings and when you're in your home groups and every single place that you are, that you are sent there on mission. And some of you, you know what some of you need to do? God gave you a dream a long time ago. And it has not changed. Dare I even say he gave you a calling a long time ago. And it has not changed. But for some reason, back in the day, you decided to hop on the easy train. Hop on the merry-go-round of normality. And you've forgotten that dream that God had for you. And I would say it's time to resurrect that dream. It's time to resurrect that vision. Because you know, you know who I'm talking to, and you know deep down in here, you could keep going the easy way, and one day, I'm telling you, one day you're going to be laying on your deathbed, you're going to be looking back, and you'll be asking the question, what if? Man, what if back in 2015, what if I'd have taken a leap of faith back then? Can I just tell you this? Do you know how that's, that's how this church got planted? By God's grace, I was surrounded by some really good friends and under some really good authority. And they said, hey, we think it's time that you plant a church. And the easy thing for me to do in my career path would have been to just keep going in kind of the established church world that I was in. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go for it. Because what if God really is calling me to do this? Now, if he's not, it'll fail in a second. No problem. All right, I'd probably be in jail for bankruptcy or something. But whatever, worth it. Because the one thing I did not want to do was to look back on my life and ask the question, what if? what if I would not have been ruled by fear? What if I'd been ruled by faith and I would have stepped out and said, okay, here we go. I'm stepping, stepping off the merry-go-round. And God, I'm gonna do what you have called me to do by faith because I believe, I believe that I have the son and you have me. And you still got the whole world in your hands. So what about you? So I dare you to ask, this, ask yourself this question. Ask yourself this question. If you could do anything for God, if you could do anything for God, and you knew it wouldn't fail, what would you do? That might be God's dream and vision for you. That might just be it. And if it is, then I dare you. I dare you to step off of what's comfortable and to step in to this epic adventure of faith that Christ died for. C.S. Lewis says it this way in a sermon called The Weight of Glory. He says this, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. You know what he says? He says, you're settling for the merry-go-round. And your problem isn't that you have too much desire. It's that you don't have enough desires. He says it this way. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Is that you? (laughs) I mean, as God has in store for you this incredible holiday at the sea And you're wasting it with ringworm in the slums playing with mud. Does that describe your walk? Because it shouldn't. He says this in mere Christianity. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Do you realize that? Please don't waste your life on the trinkets and the things of this world. Please don't waste your life just playing it safe. Why not be that person that goes for it in the name of God, understanding that he's still got the whole world in his hands? And his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So I can promise you, you can trust him to provide you with everything you need to fulfill his dream for your life, I promise. And just for those of you that say, I don't know, it's too big of a step. I don't know if God can pull it off. Ezekiel chapter 37, I want to read to you this account. It's just crazy. You should read your Bible. It's in the Bible. Listen to what God does. Ezekiel is a a prophet in the Old Testament And here's what God has him do. It says, the the hand of the Lord was upon me. This is Ezekiel talking. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. That means these people have been dead for a long, long time. It's called the valley of dry bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know, which means I don't know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to him, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. That word breath is ruah. Say ruah. Alright, you got a hawk at the end. Ruah. Alright, you're getting better. Front row's awesome. All right, listen. The word in Hebrew for breath and spirit are the same word. It's an intentional wordplay that when God created Adam, it says that, that God gathered the dust of the earth and he created Adam and Adam was in the form of a man. And then God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils, the ruah of life into Adam's nostrils or the spirit of life into Adam's nostrils. And he became a living being. So he says, Behold, I will cause ruah to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, to put ruah in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the ruah, prophesy to the breath, prophesy my." Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded, and the Ruah came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Listen to me. You might think your dreams are dead. You might think God's vision for you is dead. But if he can bring an army of dead soldiers back to life and put his spirit in them, then, then you can have hope. If the gospel is true and Jesus Christ could be resurrected from the dead, you know what that means? That means that your, that your marriage could be resurrected. That your life could be resurrected. That your that your relationship with your dad, I know you haven't talked to him in 10 years and you think it's irreconcilable, but if God can bring an army of Israel from a valley of dry bones, and if God can bring his son back from the grave, then he can bring that re- relationship back to life. He could bring your finances back to life. And more important than all that, he could bring your very soul back to life and breathe the breath of God into it. So, church of 1122. For God's sake, and I mean that literally, for God's sake, may we get off of the merry-go-round of normality. And may we step into that ruah, that spirit, that breath, that life that Jesus shed his blood for. Amen? Amen. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you do have a purpose and a plan and a dream for every single one of us here. Holy Spirit, I pray. God, I pray that there would be a rattling in this place today. There'd be a rattling. And God, that wh- where things were dead, where relationships were dead, that there would be life, that there would be resurrection, there would be newness of life, that the Spirit of God would be so present in us that we would, we would have no choice but to step out on faith in you. God, may, may we may we not look like the rest of the world. God, our danger is not the persecution of the world, it's the seduction of it. May we not live... the the life that this world baits us to live, but may we live a life found in you and you alone. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move. I pray that you would knock down strongholds. I pray that you would stir faith in people to step out in faith, trusting you to the epic adventure that you call us to when you say come and follow me. I pray it in the good strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, we respond by singing. We're going to do that. We respond by bringing our first and best, our tithes and offerings, because because God first loved us by giving us his best. And we respond by praying. Some of you have life-altering decisions to make. You need to come down to the altar. You need to bend your knee. And you need to ask for God to fill you with faith, to drive away that fear for what you know you need to do now. Let us respond.